named our podcast the World Class Agency Podcast, not because we thought we were world class, but because we try and get closer to it every conversation that we have. What does World Class Estate Agency look like to you? World Class Estate Agency is all about people. The good estate agents add, adds an incredible amount of value to the consumer. He's, he's looking after the customer properly, so being approachable, being accessible. And for me, every day's a learning day. What does being a world-class agent mean to you? Hello and welcome to today's episode of World Class Agency Podcast. My name is Mark Worrell from Love to Move and I'm joined again this week by Sam Hunter from Home Search. Sam, good morning. The sun is shining. The mornings are becoming bright. The end is in sight. And of course, Everton won at Anfield on a fantastic Saturday evening. How are you? you? For all the preparation that we've done uh, for this episode, uh, the fact that you've not brought that up, I thought I was going to get away with it, but I realised that you were just keeping it in your locker. <laughs> Mate, that is exactly, I was always going to start there, right? So um, I, I didn't speak to you that much about football in, you know, when your kids beat us last year, but this is a, diff- a very, very different time. I was very excited on Saturday. You know, there's not much that you can get too excited about on a Saturday night these days, I don't think, but Everton going to Anfield and I think to be fair, absolutely schooling you. Um, yeah, it's probably you know, one of the highlights of my weekend, I would say. Yeah, we, uh, we got well and truly pumped um, and that's all, that's all I'll say about it. Oh, come on, we've, we've, got, we've got at least five minutes of a, a chat about this. You can't more just say things that. to talk about than, uh, than just a silly game of football. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, just let, let's let's move on, which is a massive shame because I was going to tell you all about how I enjoyed a beer, blah blah blah. Um, but um, what are you finding market-wise? Um, because I I mentioned there about the mornings getting brighter as I drove in this morning to do this podcast. I thought it is getting lighter. Um, I booked a viewing for quarter past five um, this week because. I, we can now, you know, people can still see those nice gardens and the, the bright days. It feels like spring is coming. And um, we've seen an uplift in the market within the last two weeks, certainly um, from valuations, and hopefully they're going to come through in, in instructions. Um, I've been more active doing valuations. I had four valuations on Friday, um, which, given that I don't do very many valuations, was a, was a lot. I really enjoyed actually the social side of of getting out and, and getting them done. Mm. But what is what what are you finding? Are you seeing that same sort of improvement in the market? And do you think when lockdown is fully released, we'll get a bounce similar to the one that we had last year? Um, I so talking to our or the agents that we work with, I'm seeing almost two different sides of the same coin. So there's your story where things are getting stronger. And I actually think what it is, is people planning for the summer, the valuations mm-hmm. that are now. I'm hearing that valuations are strong. Certainly we look at our, like, um, whether it's searches or reports generated or letters sent, we look at all the numbers every week. And you can see when people are, are valuing or getting inquiry because the report numbers go through the roof um, as yeah. much as we encourage people to use them to nurture people. It just is a valuation tool first and foremost, I guess. Um, and those numbers were strong, but you then look at instruction levels um, and they're down compared to where they were in January and certainly compared to where they were in November, December. So mm. uh, I think that we're in the planning 
stages if you're if in the consumer mindset which is not always amazing for an estate agent but interestingly uh i was on a run this morning i was talking to a mate of mine from home um and i ran i ran like the way that i usually run like uh i guess east from my house down by the river and back and then up through the nice part of, of putney from the river to where i live um and i run past this really nice house like four doors down from a coffee shop and it's had a sold sign on it since christmas time sold sign's not there anymore which I found quite interesting this morning. And I was talking to uh, my friend, Paul, definitely not a listener of the show. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And he's like, what? And I was like, well, that's had a, a SSTC, like sold SSTC, big yellow banner on it um, for, I was said to him for like six months, but it's probably since Christmas and it's gone. And the, the, the board is still there. Um, and he's like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I was like, well, sometimes things happen. People get in chains. He's like, what's a chain? Anyway, there's a long story where I was explaining to him the process of, of English real estate. And he was like, dude, that sounds horrible. I was like, yeah, it's not as bad as I probably made it out to be because I told him worst case scenario. You know, whenever you're explaining something to somebody, always use extremes because it helps them really understand how good it is or how bad it is. Um, anyway, uh, that's, a hot, that's a hot tip for listing there. And yeah, I, it, it was interesting because I was like, I want to know what's happened to that story. Like, I want to know the story behind that. And I'm tempted to call the agent who is not a home search user and be like, I run past, you know, one, two, three example road every day. Uh, and you sold, it's gone. What's happened? And can I help with it? I might do that today. That might be a bit cheeky um, because it was there on Saturday and it's not there today. So we shall see uh, what's happened. But yeah, I uh, did. That's, that was where I was going with that. The other side of the coin is, um, you know, we hear a lot about, people rushing to get stuff done in the next four weeks we hear other people who are contingent on like no i don't agree with this but all the stuff that comes out with the chancellor saying we're thinking about extending standard duty and then there's there's going to be a six-week extension but nothing's done i see agents sharing that with their clients and i'm like that's really dangerous because you, you, you're mm -hmm. giving people either false hope or you're giving them the idea that they could potentially pull out uh, and I was like, your job is just to get on with it and to make sure that you're holding both sides, like crossing a road with your kids, right? You would not let their hands go for fear of them running off into traffic. Yeah. You've got to hold your buyer's hand. You've got to hold your seller's hand so tight so they don't run off into the traffic no matter what happens at the start of March. So, yeah, I don't think it's all doom and gloom, but I don't think it's all gravy either at the moment. I think, I think it's really interesting that you talk about the planning stage because what we have had... We've had an increase in valuations, but we've probably also had a, an increase in, this is sort of an agent's worst nightmare, isn't it? When you go to see someone and say, right, we're ready to move, but we just can't find something, so we're going to wait. And I think um, certainly in our area, that's really dangerous for sellers to do because they're going to miss out on properties because there are so many people in, in that position. But it means that the market is sort of, it almost feels like it's getting ready to go, but not not quite there. So it'd be interesting to see um, how, and I think you're right, that planning stage develops over the next few um, weeks. And let's hope those instructions come and people do start to become um, a little braver with it. But um, just before we dive in and introduce um, today's guest, Sam, how, how are we doing on accountability? I know that you were up early this morning. You've obviously um, been for your run, so fantastic on the exercise. MBA still going well, still um, making the calls? Still making the calls, still doing my course. Had my second exam yesterday. Uh, got 16 out of 22, which was annoying. I got 21 out of 22 on the first one. That was really dirty. This one scraped through. Um, yeah, I think probably uh, I'm, I'm 
tired at the moment and whether that's an excuse or not or whether it was just difficult I don't know but still passed thankfully so I don't have to do it again uh, so my half hour a day seems to be what's necessary there um yep still doing the work conversations uh, as well okay. which is good it's actually really interesting to hear to talk to people I've never spoken to in the past and to just sort of hear their experiences using uh what we do because you either find out they have some really cool ideas um which is excellent um, and also really dangerous because you're like well that, you know we've got our next sort of three or four things planned and spec'd out and estimated and sort of timed out and then you hear something quite cool and you're like oh could i just wedge that in because that is quite cool um and then <laughs> the other side of the coin, yeah exactly but then on the other side of the coin you, you speak to people and they're like oh I, you know i, I didn't uh, learn that and you then you look at their onboarding and they've not actually gone through what we suggest that they go through and stuff which is uh, a part of the process that we need to improve on you know so whether it's mm -hmm. more manual stuff whether it's more automated stuff whether it's more video um, you know one of the things that we want to bring in is actually like have automated tutorials in the system so that people can't actually proceed until they like click a few buttons and learn where stuff mm -hmm. is um, and also then just simplifying that down so it's, it's been a really useful exercise for me and, and I would say four out of five calls every day are pretty enjoyable too which is good i was just going to say i bet you're quite enjoying that social side of um speaking to users and getting that direct feedback as i said with the valuations going out and doing that sometimes um when you don't do a part of the job as much as you you want did you go back and do it you realize exactly how much fun it is yeah i did a like a pitch last week uh and oh man it was all over the shop like, you know how I always say on this show, like, I reckon I'd be all right at, at listing still. Well, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've like pitched home search. And anyway, I got called into one and I was really high energy, which I don't know was that good on the other side of a Zoom screen. Because I and literally I was like, I don't do these very often. So I'm pretty excited to sort of show you stuff that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> what it actually does. This is why we built it. This is how far we've come. And then like 20 minutes in, I was like, I realized guys that I've been talking really fast for about 20 minutes. Do you have any questions? And I'd not noticed the chat in the Zoom had had like four questions asked in it. And so I was like, <laughs> right, Sam, rein it in a little bit here. Let's slow down. Let's ask some questions. Let's figure out what's important to them instead of you just going off on one of your own tangents as I always seem to do. Um, but we've got the business. So what well, we got a trial for the business, but that's still pretty good. That's really interesting that you say that about the about getting too excited because I had what I think is probably a fairly similar situation a couple of times in that I've not been doing very evaluations but a couple more but I did one my first one in ages and I felt myself during that um, conversation thinking my God I've just done an awful lot of talking and like you I had to rein myself in and and start trying to listen I didn't business actually but did learn from it and then. My four valuations that I mentioned on Friday, one came on the market straight away, two um, have told me that they will be using my services when they come to market, and the final one, I've set up a WhatsApp, um, and we're onward negotiating to try and get him um, through a house that he really wants to see that we've got contact with. So um, all really successful, but probably had to go through that process of relearning that you can do too much talking at times. So I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, um, it's just, I think, um excitement or passion or novelty um even sometimes experience gets the better of you and you've got to remember it's about your audience you know um it's even the same when i'm talking to team members you know i'm really conscious of being more of a listener than a talker and they'll tell me where i need to add value to their days um 
but it, yeah like, like we said I think I said this to you a couple of weeks ago like life is just constantly reminding yourself of the important shit <laughs> you know yeah yeah absolutely and um, let's dive in and, and, and introduce today's guest shall we do we are thrilled this morning to be joined by a titan of our industry. He's been in the state agency since 1980. He ran at Douglas and Gordon day to day for 17 years. He served as non-executive director for On The Market and Payday. And more recently, he founded and runs Viewber, the on-demand viewing platform that connects busy agents with vetted viewers. Uh, we've got him on to talk a little bit about the past, but mostly a lot about the future. And after 40 years, I think it's still pretty clear as an unrelenting passion for a state agency. Ed Mead, welcome to the World Class Agency podcast. <laughs> Morning. Thank you very much, Sam. Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Um, we were saying off air, we hadn't really planned to start the conversation here, but uh, it's an interesting point, I think, to raise and, and perhaps ask you before we get stuck into um, everything else we want to talk about. Uh, news came out yesterday afternoon. There's been some interesting pieces in the, in the trade press this morning about Foxton's um, sort of sniffing around the business that you were at the helm of for so long in D&G. What do you make of that? Uh, well, I'm still a shareholder of Douglas and Gordon, so you wouldn't expect me to comment. But I think that uh, Douglas and Gordon is a number one. It's a quality name. Number two, it's a um, uh, it has a, an enormous, extraordinary quality lettings book. So it's a very, very good quality business from that perspective. And that's something it's been doing since 1958 before most people even realized renting was a thing. So it's got a very long established name and a very long established lettings book, which is very interesting. And I think a lot of people forget that the guy that took over running the business four, five, four and a half years ago um, was from Foxton's. So I think that probably says it all, really. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I'm going to say for the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll get you back on for part two in a few months' time. <laughs> in, interesting uh, news coming out of there. Um, thanks very much for that. Um, I wanted just to talk a little bit about your um, very successful career today, but really sort of try and focus on what you think are, are some, of the, some of the highlights within that career. So can you just start maybe just by telling us a couple of the, um, those achievements that you are most proud of? Um. Well, let me start by saying that I'm I, I'm very pleased I got into a state agency. Uh, if you lined up 10, 18 year olds now or 40 years ago and said, who wants to be an estate agent? No one's going to put their hand up first. So I'm first of all, I'm fairly glad I failed at my engineering degree at Bristol University because it meant <laughs> I became an estate agent. And I think I'd have made a very boring engineer. Um, and I was sort of right place, right time, really. I'm a baby boomer. I was in exactly the right place. So I've been very lucky from that perspective that I fell into agency and discovered that it was very um it was very it was perfect perfectly matched the life i wanted to live and for people who are young and getting into a state agency it's a great way to live your life you know no day is no two days are the same i think that's changing by the way but we'll come on to that sam said he wants to talk about the future of agency and i think i think the way people run their agencies is going to have to change but back in the day it was very much a, a question of we have the properties you'll come to us when you need to whereas that's that dynamic is changing these days um what am I most proud of? I mean, I think um, if I look at the early days, it was it was sticking with it. I think um, estate agency, and this is not meant in any way to be denigrating to anybody in the industry, but it's full of sort of journeymen, people who are just going from job to job to job. And that's fine. It's a great job if you enjoy that. I was very lucky in that I was in the right place at the right time, particularly with Douglas and Gordon um, in the mid 90s, um, when D&G were very well known for 
what I would now call prime London, which is the sort of Battersea, Fulham, Hammersmith, those sort of areas, which they'd been in for quite some time, but they'd never had a great name right in the middle. They'd done a lot of renting in the middle of London, but not a lot of selling. And I had quite a good reputation at that stage in the centre, and it was a very good marriage. So that was particularly good. But the, the, the two things that I think I was luckiest with, and I'm most pleased with, they're not necessarily achievements as such, were being underneath a guy called Andrew Langton at Aylesford's, who was an absolute genius. He foresaw foreigners coming to the UK, set up a boutique agency, and he was absolutely, Aylesford's was, still is absolutely the model for what a good boutique agency should be. High quality people, well paid in the right location. And the second thing was to meet a lady called Rebecca Reed, who uh, ran a company, she used to work for Russell Simpson in central London, then she set up her own agency called Reed Cunningham. I went to work for her and she was the absolutely perfect estate agent. Just so Andrew was a great boss. Rebecca was a fantastic agent and absolutely um, rammed home to me the ethics of the industry, who you're acting for, what you should be saying, um, uh, how you should be acting, et cetera, et cetera. And it was, it was that that I think acted as a very good base. And I think building up a quality image for yourself um, as someone who knows what they're talking about always says things as they are. I think that's the best thing. I mean, in terms of actual achievements, Mark, it's very difficult to sort of be specific about that. I mean, you know, in, when you're in business, having a spectacular year is a good, uh, and I remember those years of sort of 97, 98 were spectacular in terms of the amounts of money we made um, at D&G or particularly in the Chelsea office where I was at that time. Um, and then further down the line, I was very, very lucky to sort of discover that I had a uh, an ability on the PR level, which is really almost, it's not completely why I'm sitting with you now, but I managed to, I discovered that I was very good at PR and I had a very good tutor, someone who took us on and we discovered how difficult doing PR was. And that led to all sorts of things. I fronted two BBC TV series. I did a, um, I wrote for 10 years in the Telegraph as the agent provocateur. I wrote in the Sunday Times as their property expert. I still write for Property Industry Eye, The Spectator, various other things, and I thoroughly enjoy that. So I think one of my achievements, I think, would be or would have been to have been um, uh, thought of well enough to have been able to give opinions on the industry and what's going on in the property market. There's two points I think I, I'm, I'm quite keen to maybe go a bit deeper on out of, out of that. Uh, firstly, I want to come and maybe I'll ask them in reverse just to confuse the three of us and everyone listening to this. <laughs> I want to come back to no two days being the same and what may change in the future. Um, but firstly, I want to talk about one of the things I wrote down uh, was that um, everyone great had a mentor uh, is, is the note that I've sort of written. And you mentioned two people that clearly pay, played uh, extensive roles in the development of your career and one of the things that you said and, and forgive me I've completely forgot to write down the lady's name that you mentioned um but you said she was a, the perfect estate agent Rebecca Reed R-E-A-D yeah Rebecca Reed unfortunately so, unfortunately dead now but uh Vale Rebecca Reed um what what made her the perfect estate you sort of said she she taught you what to say how to act the ethics of estate agency can you talk through that in a bit more depth for everyone listening um, she was a completely obsessive individual. She smoked 60, between 60 and 80 cigarettes a day, used to eat a steak a day and drink two litres of Coca-Cola a day. Otherwise, it was all work. And she was absolutely assiduous in the way that she researched her clients, worked out what was on the market, looked after them properly. Um, and she just 
did the job to perfection. People absolutely trusted her. Uh, and more importantly, she would always be completely honest about what was going on. So it, it, that's it, really. It's, it's, it's very, very simple, but it's not something that's always the case these days. Do you think you need to be obsessed to be successful in a state agency? I think in anything, if you want to be mega successful and, and certainly if you want to become mega wealthy, you either get lucky or you're very obsessive. Um, I think being being uh, if, if you look at the people who are extraordinarily rich these days, they tend to be very well, they either inherited it or they or they or, or they got very lucky with some sort of investment or whatever, or they've been completely obsessed. I think that makes sense. Um, we're going to we're going to come back to um, what really good agency looks like at the end of, of the show. But um, I guess. To follow on with the no two days are the same and what might have to change in the future, I wanted to get your opinion on why everybody doesn't have a, a storied 40-year career. You know, why are there journeymen, as you sort of said, that, that go from opportunity to opportunity and never really stick it out or see it through? And do you think that it's that uh, type of agent that causes some of the reputational damage that exists across the industry still today? Um. Possibly. I mean, the, the thing is, what tends to happen in agency is um, you get new people in and they're extremely enthusiastic and they have no fear. And they come in and they get stuck in and they do really well to start with. And at that stage, those sort of guys will either, and actually Douglas and Gordon, the best, were always get, uh, women were always the best. Don't know why they listened. They, they, it's, it, it, it was, it was very much the case at TNG for a, for a, for a long time. But they come in, they, they do really well to start with, and then clearly you can't carry on at that. That, that slightly, that slightly used to be the Foxtons model. Pete Rollings won't like me saying this, but it was taking people in, really, really getting the most out of them, and then maybe they'd last two or three years before you went on to the next one. And <laughs> certainly, Peter, like me, was very much an advocate of having young people, you know, without fear. As they go on, the fear builds up and clearly people get responsibilities, you know, they'll get mortgages, bigger rents, they get married, whatever it is, the fear level builds up. And at that stage, the desire amongst the negotiator, amongst the salespeople, tends to be that they want to pay the mortgage and that they want to sort of have a steady life rather than thinking, right, I really want to go for this. And 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 I think that's what happens. I think people said they get a bit older and they just settle into what they would consider to be a normal Western lifestyle. Hmm. And I think that does. I think that is damaging. I think it's, um, I used to certainly avoid that, certainly when I was running an office and I used to absolutely love running an office. I, it, was the, it was the happiest period of my life. I had a fantastic team. All the people that came, well, a number of people that came through my team when I was running the Chelsea office and now running their own very successful uh, businesses. They were very driven um, people. And the wonderful thing, by the way, about doing that job really well of running an office is if you're doing it really well, you don't really have to do much. You've just got to nudge along the people. It's like just feeding the machine. All you've got to do is be good enough to get the stuff in at the front and you, and you just nudge the guys along and be there for them. But the... Um, yeah, the journeyman thing, it's not meant to sound rude. I think those sort of people will keep an agency going. They're like, they're like a sort of engine room. They just sort of keep it going along, but they like the lifestyle, you know, um, and they, they never do anything bad enough that if someone else is looking for, for a new salesperson, they still tend to look for a safe pair of hands. Mm. 
they don't necessarily want to take the risk of, of getting somebody in who's never done it before. And I think that's sad. And I think that is changing a little bit. I think that there, there, there's a little bit more of the sort of let's take a chance on this guy coming in rather than let's rely on the older, you know, um, you know, the older head. Yeah, I think I think it's it's really interesting that you um, talk about taking um, people and maybe introducing them into the industry. And I just wanted to come back to um, your previous answer, Ed, and you talked about being really lucky in your industry because you had those two fantastic people. And all of what you've talked about so far, it shows that people have been such a key part of your career to date and um, all that. And I think that's really interesting. A lot of people talk about this industry as being a, a people industry, but I don't think we've had anyone that's come on and spoken about people um, quite as passionately as you about the people that you've been involved in. But um, we're recruiting at the moment and we're looking at that um, no two days are the same. It's something I've said in a number of interviews over the last um, the la last couple of weeks. So I wanted to come back to what you said on that and just ask, um, why do you think it is that no two days are the same and with an agency? And why do you think that is, is really attractive to new people coming into the business? Um, well, I think it's attractive for, for a certain percentage of the population. The one thing I would say, Mark, about, about um, employing people is that there are some very good tools these days for employing people and making sure they're in the right job. D Douglas and Gordon's at the forefront of what I would call psychometric testing. And we used to regularly test people. When the, when the company first came to us and said, uh, we want to test your people and we'll, well, we think our tool can tell you what sort of people you're interviewing, what job they're going to be good for. And we said, right, to test that, we want to put you to maybe 40 people in our business and we're going to give them to you blind. You tell us what they do when you've seen the psychometric test. And they ran all these and they were absolutely on the money, except for my PA who came out, I think, wanting to be president. She was quite bossy. <laughs> um, but but it, was, it was absolutely brilliant. And I think these days you can triage people before they get to a to, to the to the to the stage of, it's just a tool really of making you think about what you need to to do with people um or, or or what they might be what might be the best thing for them and i think that is that is radically um altered the way a lot of people can do business but no two days the same thing is is um I, th I think it is changing a little bit. I think in the old days, agents really were expected to be absolutely everything. You had to be able to sort of meet a seller, possibly persuade a seller to sell. You had to be a sort of marriage guidance counselor, a driver. You had to be very good at talking. You had to be a closer. So you had to be quite sort of, you had to be quite uh, dynamic. Um, and you could end up doing anything that, that would normally pass for, um, listening to people's problems you could be a counselor there's there's all sorts of things and then you had the thing of going out to show properties um and the best bit for the for the majority of agents is that bit when they they you know they go out and they take someone on a tour or they go and meet someone to show a house that's the bit that the agents really that's one of the that's one of the bits they most enjoy doing is you know, grabbing a coffee calling the girlfriend nice sunny day company car whatever it is you know that's the bit they really enjoy but unfortunately, and this is what we'll come on to, I think, in a minute when we talk about the changes in agency, that's the bit that's really changing. That's the really inefficient bit. And in the old days, you could afford to pay three or four negotiators to, to sit around the office waiting for the phone to ring. And when the phone rang and they wanted to go and see something, you took them out. And there wasn't much proactive work that went on. I mean, that's clearly now changing enormously. But also, um, it didn't particularly matter that the inefficient job of... Um, 
is that me? If it is, I absolutely apologize. Um, that's my daughter. I'll get her out of the picture very quickly there. I'll turn my phone off. So I'll um, the difficulty um, of trying to persuade people these days, I mean, it's, it's partly why I launched Vuba, because I recognized that it was, a, which I think was slight, not, not ahead of its time from that perspective, but I know the, the, inefficiencies that, in, the inefficiencies that we used to have that were driven by having negotiators going out. So I think the, the no two days are the same thing has been very attractive in the past. It won't cease to be attractive in the, in the future just because things like that stop, but it's just you never know who's going to be on the phone next. And from that perspective, it's always going to be different. It's almost like you can see our questions here, Ed, because my next question is about Vuber, actually. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested. Um, it's a business that we've spoken about in, in great detail in the past, but really interested to see how that's changed um, with the pandemic over the last year and how you think it might change in the future as well. Well, I think the most shocking, not shocking thing, the most surprising thing for me about Vuber is that when I... Um, uh, came up with the idea for Vuber, it was because at Douglas and Gordon, we had issues with weekend staff. That was the, that was the major problem for us. We knew we were missing out on a lot of business at weekends because people's demographic was, or the, the demographic of people who wanted to buy and rent was changing. They didn't want to see things on a Saturday, on a, on a Tuesday afternoon. They wanted to do it on when they wanted to do it at a weekend. And we used to have a Saturday, yeah. Saturday staff member at each office. Their diary was full by Tuesday. Um, and the people who were in the office were good. They were, you know, they, they had lives. They didn't all want to work at weekends. So Saturdays they would do, sort of one in two or one in three. They wouldn't work Sundays at all. So that's why I started up Vuba. Um, the demographic, the, the um, pandemic, so COVID has clearly been quite friendly for Vuba. I don't want to sound so ghoulish about it really, but there've been a number of people who've had problems with staff on furlough. They've had to isolate an office or whatever it is. And we've, we've gained um, a lot of users. And what tends to happen with Vuba is that people use us once and then they think that's great. And they, they, just, they just keep us on record and they use us when they need us. It's not like Vuba takes over. I mean, clearly for some businesses, there are much more, there's much more use for Vuba than others, but my, desire was always to get the high street to see that here was something which enabled you to do what Knight Frank and Savills and Strutton Parker do which is to have weekend staff or out of hours staff that you can use when you need to that's what they that's what they do what has surprised me Mark is that uh, of Vuba's inventory these days only six percent is high street agency the vast majority are the new breed of online and hybrids the biggest part is auctions um, and then we have a lot of property management, housing associations, these sort of things. So I think what's happened and, and the, the number from the high street has come up a bit. I think I'm, I'm pleased that uh, COVID obviously has seen viewings drop by, I don't know, 50% or something. I mean, there's a huge number dropping, yet our business has stayed pretty consistent from the high street. So clearly we've been winning business from the high street. But um, I think there's been a real resistance for all sorts of reasons we can talk about. I think that, you know, we're not fighting another competitor in this area. We're fighting the status quo, the existing status quo. And I think that, that it is the status quo that is going to change for the future. That's the biggest, uh, I nearly said enemy, but it's probably not the enemy, but that is what everybody entering this space, even with um, ideas that have been, you know, uh, incepted in the past faces against, is, is that attitude of we've always done it this way. Um, I think, um, and I only know this industry. The you know the only other job I've ever really had is working at a cinema, 
Uh, and even then, like when I was working there, I remember we used to set up films on reels and everyone else was putting USB sticks in and it took us a long time to switch that. So it's not just property or estate agency, whatever you say, that is slow to change. I just think people are slow to change in, in, in the majority. Um, I, I want to talk about that change that's occurring in the industry now. And I think um, we have all kinds of, of guests on this show and they come on and they talk about how they do things and what matters to them in their business and what they consider to be really good real estate. Um, and I think at the moment, um, the market that we're in, or perhaps the market that we're coming out of, is the kind of market that attracts people to becoming estate agents because they see houses selling in 24 hours or off-market deals or whatever it is. And there's that mentality of, oh, gee, that's easy. How much did you get paid for that? You know, and a lot of people get into it for that reason because they see this racy market, um, not quite understanding the obsession to come back to Rebecca for a second, you know, and the ethics and the diligence and the discipline that's involved to actually make a go of it and not be one of those journeymen. Um, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise you. I think it, it, it would appear, whether it's with technology or the businesses that are being set up as sort of self-employed models, if you want to call it that, it's almost never been easier um, or cheaper to become an estate agent. You know, never run at home. I'm using rabbit ears when I say that for some people. You know, what's your sense for um, where the industry needs to go? Is it more of these self-employed agents? Is it more of the hybrid model? Is it a rethinking of the high street as it merges and acquisitions like we talked about at the start of the show um what's your sense for the future and what the the ed mead version of the right thing looks like well i think that the changes in the industry are largely being driven as i alluded to a little bit earlier by the demographic of buyers and sellers becoming younger and younger they have different expectations of the way they can do business and there are some very different estate agents high street estate agents out there younger uh, people who are running their offices in very different ways with very different um, methodologies, you know, staying open long hours, you know, being being available at times when pre previously agents would have expected people to come to them. Um, I think the difficulty with a lot of these models is, I mean, I'll give you an example. The self-employed model sounds great and you've got these overarching brands that come in from the States. The thing about the States and being a realtor in the States is that the people who are realtors there inveigle themselves right into their local society. Mm. They go to the sports meets, they go to the Rotarian dinners, they go, they meet people locally, they get right into their community. So when someone wants to sell their property, they, they, they have the ability to go to John or Tracy because they've known them really well, they've got to know them. And in America, they have the MLS system, the multiple listing system, where they, an agent puts it on, you, you know an agent, you trust them, you've got to know them, they put it on the MLS system. The sort of job is then done. You have big, big fees, big fees to share. Here in the UK, it's a very, very different operation. The idea that John or Tracy is going to inveigle themselves into the local community and say, I'm your local realtor is just, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do. So when you're self-employed, you, you have to generate business. Now, the problem I have found with those guys is that they, what they don't tend to do is advertise their brands. It's very, very difficult to get a brand out there. If you're going to get listings, people have to know you. Your mates and the people you work with, they're going to get pretty pissed off after a few months if you constantly ring them up and say, you're selling, are you selling, are you selling? You know, it's not... That isn't a very, it doesn't make you feel good working that way. Mm. So I think um, in terms of the future of agency, you're always going to have the big agencies, companies like Connell's, Connell's fantastic operators. 
the big corporates make a lot of money out of buyers. They always tend to, you know, something like 30% of their income comes from financial services and, and, and associated services, which they do very well. Um, they trade on their brand. I think even they would be the, the first to say that the quality of the people that work in the offices sometimes isn't the same as what you get in the independent offices because the independent offices don't trade on their names often. They trade on the people they've got in the offices and it's about personalities. So that's a different operation. I think at the, so I think you're going to, you're, you're going to keep these big branded agencies. And I think there will always be a market for those guys. And I think they they've often been very good at introducing tech and using things more efficiently. Not brilliant at it, I hasten to add, but sometimes inertia can set in with those guys and they still don't want to change the way they operate. But I can see this new band of agents coming up. I can see there being, certainly from our point of view, we see very, very clearly that what used to be the progression for estate agents, so you'd be working in an office, say you've been working in my old Chelsea office in, at Douglas and Gordon, you could clearly see that I wasn't going anywhere in the early days. You could, I, I wasn't going away anywhere else. You know, the number two in the office got, you know, got some decent work when I was on holiday or whatever it was, which used to be plenty of time in those days because it was a lovely work-life balance, but that's another story entirely. Um, but the numbers sort of three and four in the office couldn't see anywhere to go. You know, they couldn't see a prospect. So they would often either go and work for a competitor or if they were gonna go and set up on their own, this didn't happen very often with me, but I'm just using it as a, as a, as a generality here, or they would sometimes go and set up on their own. Now that was quite an expensive thing in the old days. You had to sort of establish your brand, go and get an office, probably get someone to come and work for you, leaflet the area or do whatever you wanted to do. And that was quite difficult. Now it couldn't be easier to do that from your back bedroom. So if you know your, lo your locality and you've got a sort of name in the area, as I said, not necessarily self-employed, but well, I suppose this is self-employed. I mean, I, I, was use, I was using the self-employed model where you have an overarching brand, but if you want to go and set up on your own with the amount of tech that's available these days and what you can do to, to reach buyers and set up. And I know to an extent, Mark, that's, what you're, that's a lot of what, what, what you've been doing. And then there's lots of data, you know, stuff like you're doing, Sam, at Home Search. There's lots of ability to mine data these days and do things, check out the market you're in, really learn who to target, um, work out how to target them, use tech for, use tech to actually target those buyers. You can get the viewings done, you can get sales progression, all of the stuff that in the past you would have had to employ people to do or been working 25, five hours a day is now possible to be done. So I, I see the future as being much more boutique-y, much more locally based, genuinely a more American model, I think. Um, with with uh, realtors, you know, people who know know their local area really well, and then and then the big corporates. And I think there's, um, I think anybody who's in the middle is probably going to struggle a little bit. I think you, uh, we probably are three people talking to a, an echo chamber ourselves because uh, largely I think we agree. You know, I think um, the level of service has to increase. Um, because that's the expectation from people coming through in the market now. You know, first-time buyers now will will have higher expectations than ever when they become first-time sellers. And it won't be the agent who uh, has the presence or who sends a flyer through their letterbox every month that says, we've sold another one. It will be the agent that has kept them reliably informed over the time between transactions that they go, oh, we'll just use Ed. It makes sense. It's going to be easy. We know what they're all about already. Um, and you made a point before about how agents used to um, 
sit in their office, wait for the phone to ring and say, yep, come and see it on our terms. And now there's a lot more proactive activity happening. And I think that's, that's the battle of the status quo. You know, um, one of the first, literally the first lesson I ever learned in real estate was database or die, database or die, um, you know? And I think that is becoming a real mentality across the best of the industry now. And that is from big agencies, you know, hundred plus branches that are seeing the value in communicating with people who aren't moving for the next six years just to show their worth. And they understand that referrals and recommendations can come well, from part everywhere. Of the problem, by the way, is that because of the way stamp duty has gone and how difficult it is <laughs> now to sell in terms of the time and, and the legalities of selling, et cetera, et cetera, that time frame now is not six years. It's much, much longer than that. Certainly yep. it's about 17 years. Yeah. It was nearly, it was just over three years. We used to call it the itch cycle. But the itch cycle was three years. Now 17. You can imagine how many less transactions and how much less interesting it is now with those sort of timescales. Yeah. We, we did a podcast, I think, I can't remember who it was with, Mark, but we were saying we, we urge everybody that listens to our show or anyone in, in a state agency, like if all you're doing is focusing on the money and it is now 17 years, it's going to be a very lonely existence picking up the phone and working on those relationships because you'll think that there's nothing there. But to view, everybody knows somebody who's buying or selling something every year. You know, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. Not that we're going to dinner parties very much now, um, but you will always talk to someone who's like, yeah, we're thinking of moving or we want to move. We're not sure. I wanted to run this morning. My mate in Brisbane is about to have a baby. And they're like, should we just stay in our two bedroom flat? What do you think the market's like? And I was like, I haven't been there in six years. I don't really know. But, <laughs> you know, getting those daily emails that I still get every day, it seems like it's pretty spicy, you know? So if you want to buy, buy now. If not, wait it out and see what happens. But those regular contacts uh, maybe not the opportunity to directly transact with everybody but there is always a direct opportunity to find someone who is you've yeah. just got to prove you're not foolish enough to be able to get them to say yes i trust you and i like you enough to refer you to my friend well you that's, know, and that's where you start the you know projecting the brand that's what that's what that's what i was very good at douglas and gordon was projecting the brand the pr image everything else was was mm. meant we punched well above our weight so when people did think about selling or they're reading the papers or whatever it was just when that name pops up into their head that's what it's all about is making sure you're one of the three that gets through the front door agreed yeah agreed agreed absolutely i think we've, we've, we've talked quite um quite a while about the, the future Ed, a question that we ask everybody that that comes on the show and what the reason that we do it is it helps some of the listeners that that maybe aren't that experienced and, and everyone that listens to the show to build the baseline of experience and opinions to aim towards sort of every single day. And the question is, what does world-class estate agency look like to you? What is world-class estate agency? That's a good question. Um, first of all, it's honest. So it's saying exactly what's going on. I think that's, that's you know, honesty and integrity is, is something which if once you've lost it, you've lost it. You can't get it back. Um, with everything that's available on Google these days, you know, you can spend ages getting rid of that sort of information, but it's, it's, it's a very, very important part. And, and listening, I think agency is all about listening. Um, too many people just want to be, just want to talk. Um, and listening to what's going on is incredibly important. Um, these days, there's so much available to people um, that they need to be able to hear what's going on and to hear about these options that are available rather than just getting no talk to the hand i'm not listening i know exactly what this is all about and i think the you know be i think the third thing i would say um if be prepared to empower your people 
one thing I say to people at Viewbridge, you know, if you need to be giving out a couple of free viewings to try to get somebody to try the service or whatever it is, just do what you need to do. Don't come to me and say, can I do it? So empower your workforce, you know. Um, that's what I had, as I said, back in, Slo in the Sloan Avenue days in the mid 90s, is the ability to just, just sort of nudge a team along and empower them to do whatever they needed to do. I think um, a really natural and, and yet still quite powerful point to end on empowering your workforce to get on with it, you know. Um, in we certainly say in our business that um, initiative is an action word not a buzzword but you have to give people permission to take initiative I think otherwise they will always ask for that permission first um, Ed from from Mark and I uh, and everybody who's listening thank you uh, it's been it's been really awesome I know we said at the start we don't take 20 minutes of your time and we've had nearly more than half an hour so um, loads for us to unpack after this um, but again thank you it's been really great appreciate you giving up your time no, well, thanks for asking me. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a great industry. You know, there's lots to learn. Um, I think it has moved on from the old days, that from the, from the old days where it was considered. Actually, I'll, I'll give you a, I'll end on this. My stepfather, who was a, who was a very well-known guy, um, he used to um, judge people fairly harshly when he first met, first met them. And when I first met him a very long time ago, he asked what I did, and I was I, I was an estate agent. For some reason, he said, "Oh, a gentleman's profession," and <laughs> and it was a really weird thing. He considered estate agency to be a gentleman's profession, and I'd like to think it still is. So let's end on that. And I want to thank Ed from Buba for joining us on today's show. Um, really passionate guy about the industry. Really passionate about the people. Um, but also for me, and I know we say this you know, um, fairly often, but I, he made a big difference to me and to our business when we first started out. So I would consider him as one of the nicest, most generous people um, in estate agencies. But I don't, I don't think I've ever told you this story, but basically we launched um, four years ago now. Um, and I suppose our business model at Love to Move was considered quite novel, um, this fixed fee element, but working with established high street agents. And literally one day, um, just get a LinkedIn um, connection request from Ed. Connect. He sends me a message and says something like, hi, Mark, um, saw you in the industry press. Um, I think you've got a fantastic business model. Let's have a chat. And I thought, that's quite interesting. I, at this point, had no idea who Ed Mead was. He literally rings me up and he says, hi, Mark, I think your business model will be fantastic. I'd like to put you in touch with these two businesses, two um, very big um, corporate companies. I think they'd be really interested in your services. It's like, fantastic. Yeah, please, please do. Um, so he did. Um, we went on and had negotiations with, um, with one of the detailed negotiations. It didn't come to anything in the end, but it wasn't a million miles off um, of doing so. And ever since then, I've just thought... Um, what a lovely guy. He wasn't involved in that business and um, he wasn't involved in my business. He just, um, I suppose, did the old estate agency thing of, of, of matchmaking. And, and ever since then, I've had a lot of um, respect and admiration for Ed. And I think, you know, the reason I tell you that story is just for anybody listening who hasn't met him, probably just gives you a measure of the man, in my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, it's a story for me. Um, yeah, we started talking really last year and just share very similar ideals about business and life and estate agency and you know the chat that we've just gone through i think suffised that he understands uh what's important what matters and how any agent anywhere you know 
uh, can be world class. You know, I thought a lot of the stuff that he sort of talked about um, was again like dangerous levels of common sense. Um, for me, the, the thing that really stood out is the guy's been in a state agency for 40 years. He's had an incredible career. You know, he is one of the more well-respected people in UK state agency um, mm -hmm. out of anybody. Um, and he started where everyone did, you know, he, he was, and he talked about luck, being lucky to be in where he was, being lucky to be good at PR, being lucky to have those mentors, but you make your own luck in life. You know, I'm sure that he went around saying, please and thank you for a few you know, weeks, months, years, however long it was before that luck hit him. Um, you know, and, and I think for anybody listening to this that wants to have a career as successful as someone like Ed Mead, it's, you know, find people who've done it before and learn from them, you know, le like leverage their experience, give, help them as much as they help you and you sort of get there and then stick at it. You know, that was another really powerful point, you know, out of everything he's done in his career, what he's talking about, businesses that he's grown, run, teams that he's developed, money that he's made, businesses he's now founded, you know, he said he was most proud they just stuck with it, you know. Mm. And I think there's uh, a real lesson in just keeping on going, you know. I think, I think there was a lot in his answer to the question um, about his greatest achievements to date. And a lot of it, he actually said, his, his words, I think was one of the luckiest because I had two fantastic people to follow. So when, when I asked that question about achievements, I didn't expect him to talk about the people, but throughout the interview, he talked about people, um, you know, the good people. You asked him what made the perfect agent. Um, really interesting that he said obsessive and completely honest. So he then went on to say, um, if you're going to be successful, you either have to be lucky or obsessed. Um, maybe sometimes you even make your own look because you are you are so obsessed. So I think that's a really interesting um, thought. What's what's your view on that, um, Sam? I know I know that you listen to the High Performance Podcast and they try and sort of take away and, and talk about you know the mental health of not being overwhelmed and all of that sort of thing. I know you're you're big on that. So so where do you where do you think it sits between obsession and you know healthy mind, healthy lifestyle? Um, I think to a point you have to be. Uh, obsessed I think obsessed is uh, it's got negative connotations to it yeah when you're talking yeah, about yeah. It. sorry if you can hear Charlie in the background as well she's having a bit of a mare this morning um, yeah I think obsession when you think about it you think negative you think like stalkerish you know um, yeah. but I think um, passionate is perhaps a better way of describing it because if you're passionate about something you will commit to it you'll be disciplined towards it you will want to live and breathe it. You know, there's that Eric Thomas quote, you know, when you want something as bad as, as you need to breathe, you'll achieve it. Um, mm -hmm. You wouldn't say that you're obsessed uh, with breathing, but it just becomes, it's part of what you do. It's automated. It's everything like that. So I think when we talk about obsession, it is 100% going all in, you know, and, and I think um, there was a point where um, Ed was talking about it, like, um, the agent, the agency, the industry moving towards being much more boutique, much more local, um, much more whether it's individual and the person based or company based, we didn't really go into. Um, and I think there's probably room for it being both. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say much more obsessive from an agency perspective. People are going to expect if we're to be the world class agents, the professionals that we all want to be. If someone asks you a question, as Mark from Love to Move, you know, or Mark from Moving Works, you've got to be able to answer. 
So you need to know what the average value of their street is. You need to know how many have sold in the last three months. You need to know how many active buyers you may have for their three bedroom bungalow in Will or wherever it might be, you know? So you've, you've got to be able to have those answers. Uh, and I think that only comes from that level of obsession about really knowing your market and understanding it and being able to provide that service. Um, same thing again, if, if you've got to be obsessed about, we have got to be passionate about people, you know, you have to understand people implicitly so that you recognize when they're committed. You know, we talked at the start mm-hmm. of the pod about you have to hold people's hands to get through the next few weeks. You, well, you need to know when people are making signs of arming and ahhing or are they serious? They're just making an offer to sort of secure that while they go and maybe find something better. In this country, that's a real thing. You know, so mm-hmm. you've got to be obsessed about learning about that and understanding it and making sure that you're asking the right questions to, to know everything about people. Um, or you're not that and you're happy to get paid a reasonable wage and 10% commission to job and maybe you do become one of those journeymen over time. Yeah, I think I think if you change obsession to commit committed, obsessed yeah. to committed or or passionate, almost as committed or passionate as the Everton players were on on Saturday night, you're probably going to go <laughs> quite far. I imagine. Yeah. Um, I, I I want to talk about um, something that may have gone a little bit undetected in in the interview, but when Ed talked about leadership, I thought this was really interesting. Um, in he talked about um, when you're running an office and doing it well it means that you don't have to do very much. And he actually just talked about nudging it along. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting um, viewpoint. So obviously someone who's run a very successful office, he went on to say that you know, a lot of those individuals that work with him now, now run their own offices. Hopefully they just nudge it along because you know they, they learn from one of the best. So sometimes I think um, leaders, we can probably be... Um, too obsessed with trying to get too involved or, or trying, um, you know, to have too much of a holdover. Um, and he then came back to, to talking about it in world-class agency as well and about empowering your people, which is definitely something that I could learn a little bit about, I think. Yeah, I think the nudging along thing, like the analogy that came to my mind um, when he ran through that was plane taking off. So you need to use all the force and all the fuel possible. And then once you get to altitude, you're just cruising. And so it's really efficient. You know, you're not burning a lot of fuel. If, if you think about planes, and I know I use a lot of plane analogies on this show, but most of the fuel is there for takeoff and getting up to that. The rest of it sort of just goes from there because you're relying on all the hard work you've already done. I think in business, it's the same. Too many people quit while they're still on the runway um, because it's hard. Too many people quit when they've just taken off because it's really hard and you've just got to keep going. You know, we're in that phase of our business now where we're not at altitude by any stretch of the imagination, but we're not on the ground either. So, you know, mm-hmm. our engines are fired up. We're you know, trying to rise through the air and it takes a lot of effort. And then when you get to the top, you're right. You do just need to give it a nudge along. You need to remember to do all the important stuff that you did at the start that got you to where you were. So you don't want to turn the engines off because you just fall out of the sky. But perhaps you don't need to, um, or maybe you're already established. So people know the name Douglas and Gordon. You know, so that, like he said, we were one of the three that were always getting called in. That may not have been the case 20 years in the past, you know, and the way that, that the market and, and marketing and social media and online and offline being inline, all that stuff, it probably doesn't take 10 years to get to that altitude point. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, I think we've get on the show next week um, is somebody who sort of got 
you know, 20 odd listings in his first four weeks and has built a really successful business in under two months through some fairly modern and innovative practices. And um, I think it shows you that, you know, what was once newspaper advertising, press clippings, you know, et cetera, letterbox drops can be done at scale and quickly, but still with that same commitment. I really like that rather than obsession. Um, digitally, you know. I think, I think it's really interesting. And just to continue that, that, that plane taking off analogy, because I really like that. Um, and I'd like to think that, you know, we're, we're at a similar sort of stage as a, as a business. But maybe then when, when you're in the air, it then becomes about customer service. And if you think about what then happens with serving the drinks and, you know, making sure that everyone's happy and all of that side of things, maybe once you have put in the hard yards of setting the business up, setting up your marketing funnel, setting in your processes, all of that hard graft, using all of that fuel as you talked about, when you're in the air and cruising, maybe it's customer service that takes, um, you know, becomes front and centre to make sure you continue that progress. I think so. I mean, customer service is our sales strategy, basically. You know, um, we don't lose many people um, out of our sort of ecosystem, or like we have customers, and when we do it, really hurts, and I need to find out why. You know, yeah. because we've let them down. You know we've lost an engine mid-flight and then planes dropped and or it's had too much turbulence and people are like, this, I want to get off. So I think you're exactly right. It, it is entirely about that sort of level of customer service. And that comes back to that point we were talking about at the end with it of, um, you know, people used to have a three-year itch, then a seven-year itch, now it's a 17-year itch. Well, your customer service allows you to find, like allows you to network with everyone you know who's not yet at their 17 years to go and find the people that they know who are and make sure that you're connected with them referred to them and you have the opportunity to serve those people through the people that you've proved over such a long period again i i don't think we can harp on that enough a referral every conversation can lead to an opportunity even if it's not with that person and that is reason enough to be committed obsessed passionate enough to pick up the phone and deliver some value yeah and then to do it with the honesty and integrity um that Ed talked about. We talked at the in the intro a little bit about listening and the skill of listening. Um, he talked he talked about it in a world class agency. And if it's good enough for Ed, I think it's good enough for me. Agreed. Um, cool cool thing for us to know. I think is uh, you know we don't talk about it enough. The state agency being a gentleman's profession, gentleman's profession in this twenty twenty one PC world that we live in. Um, yeah. But it is. You know, I, I say this to people all the time that. You know, most of the absolute best people I know on this planet are real estate agents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, one thing I just want to say just to, to close, the, the gentleman's profession, I really like that. Um, friend of the show, um, a fantastic, you know, gentleman as well, Stephen Brown, obviously going through a very tough time at the moment. Um, Sam, so just wanted to say to him that we are thinking about you. Um, his wife lost long and brave battle of cancer over the weekend. So um, our thoughts are with you, Stephen, and your family. If you do listen to this episode, um, and just wrap up, as you know, we do this because we love our industry. We want to see it get better um, and improve. So if you like what we do, please share, um, rate, and drop us a review. I'm Mark Worrell. He's Sam 